All right, we are rolling now. Counting us down. Three, two. You're listening to Missing Out with Lex Michael and Tari J. Let's start the show. Hello there, Misketeers. Welcome back to Missing Out. I'm Tari J. I'm Lex Michael. And if this is your first time listening, what we do here is we introduce each other to different media, whether it be movies, music, television, spoken word, books, experiences, things that has built us up as people. And in, in sharing it, we hope that it builds you up. We are the retrospective that is introspective. That's right. When you threw your stick up into the air, it landed in such a way that pointed you towards the Missing Out podcast. Heck yeah. And we welcome you. You know, new and old, good and bad, somewhere in the middle, innocent bystander. (laughs) Um, This week is the beginning of February. Mm -hmm. Everyone knows it as uh, Black History Month, which is dope. Happy Black History Month. Um, But it's also Love Month where Valentine's Day happens and people start coupling up. And we thought we'd go in the other direction. Right. A lot of people try to label this month a lot of different things. And they're all all great, right? Like they've all got uh, these labels all have a lot of uh, 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 meaning to the people that ascribe them. Right. But. But Tari. Yes. We are going in a different direction. Yes. We're, We're not about labels here. Nah, not at all. Ooh, baby. So we got a three-week series uh, starting off with Yojimbo this week. Next week, we have Fistful of Dollars. And the last week being The Last Man Standing. Oh, I see what you did. Hell yeah. That was really good because the one word in in the one sentence is the same word as the other word in the other sentence. That's how it works, baby. That's why I'm so good at this. Uh, So that's the plan. And... Lex Michael, what are we calling this week? Uh, We're calling this week one in the month with no name. Hell yeah. You like it as branding. Heck yeah. No, it's the best kind of branding because my work was already done for me by smarter, more talented people. I mean, but you're remixing it. Well, see? So speaking of which, why these three movies? Well, if you know these three movies, then you already know the answer to that question. But if you are new to uh, Yojimbo, Fistful of Dollars, Last Man Standing, or all three. Yojimbo is the 1961 classic by Akira Kurosawa, starring Toshiro Mifune. I'm doing your job. I'm taking it from you. Uh, (laughs) Starry's like, I don't care. Yeah. Starring the great Toshiro Mifune. It uh, loosely based actually on a a couple of Dashiell Hammett stories, but was the basis very directly for Sergio Leone's uh, Fistful of Dollars, which is a remake of Yojimbo. No, they hadn't secured the rights ahead of time. So for a while, they had to do, you know, big finger quotes remake. The right. United States release was delayed because they hadn't secured those rights. But it is very much a remake. And Last Man Standing, starring Bruce Willis, very much a direct, official, sanctioned remake of Yojimbo. So I thought, and Tari uh, allowed me to do this, so the implication would be he agrees, uh, I thought it would be really interesting and really fun to take a look at the same story as told by three different filmmakers with three completely different styles. We're talking about, of course, Kurosawa, we're talking Sergio Leone, and we're talking Walter Hill. Uh, excellent filmmakers, uh, masters of the craft. Uh, how do they approach telling the same story? You know what I mean? And through different cultural prisms as well. Uh, because, you know, you've got Kurosawa telling a samurai story, a samurai fantasy uh, you've got Sergio Leone telling this big operatic uh, uh, spaghetti western story, and you've got Walter Hill telling this story that's the same premise set in Prohibition era between American gangs. I thought it would be really fun to take a look, compare, contrast, uh, poke around at the idiosyncrasies unique to each one of these stories, uh, see how they compare to each other, not to rank them or or anything. So uh, I, I feel that exercise is generally kind of hollow, right. but more more to get a, a look at how different teams from different cultures with different intentions as far as methodology approach the same material. Okay. And so since Yojimbo is the thing that kicked it all off, can you give us a pitch why people should even be interested in that story at all? Well, honestly, I would say all you need is Kurosawa and Mufune, but all right, let's go a little bit deeper. So Akira Kurosawa, widely considered to be one of our greatest filmmakers of all time. Uh, and of course, when you think samurai cinema, what what pops into most people's heads is imagery from Kurosawa movies first and foremost. 
the character in Yojimbo, Yojimbo meaning bodyguard, uh, is a man with no name. He chooses a name for himself, but he is a mysterious stranger. Rides into town, finds himself in the middle of a gang war, essentially. A gang war uh, really in service of the agendas of two merchants. He realizes that uh, this landscape would probably be better without either side of this gang war. So why don't I, to my own ends, for my own purposes, jump in the middle of this fray and play one side of the gang war against the other? It's a really dark, kind of raw, awesome samurai fantasy, but it is also a comedy. It's a very dark comedy, and we are actually playing with real themes. Um, the, the themes of class are more present in Yojimbo than they are certainly uh, certainly in Fistful of Dollars, but uh, it's it's funny. It's It's got super stylized violence. Uh, it is a touchstone for so many recognizable stories that were told in movies afterwards, and Akira Kurosawa and Toshiro Mifune. I mean, both, uh, as always, firing on all cylinders. Uh, Yojimbo is it's an all-timer. That's what I got for you. I mean, that's enough. Thank you. Do you accept sure. my pitch? I accept your pitch. Uh, so this was my first time seeing the movie. Um, I will be upfront and honest that, like, I don't think I've seen much Kurosawa stuff. Um, so this was a delight. Um, I, I'm a big fan of anime and a big fan of Japanese culture, and I can see the pieces of this movie that have influenced other pieces of media. Yes. Um, and so it was a, it was a nice treat, uh, especially like this, this idea of this, like Ronin just wandering the, the streets of Japan. Uh, I believe this takes place in 1860, uh, or around 1860 at the end of the uh, Edo era. Yes. And so, uh, and I guess I had read somewhere that the the gun samurai, uh, I believe his name is Unosuke, he, uh, him having a gun is, is a sign that uh, Western civilization is starting to encroach upon Japanese culture. Yes. Um, so it's a nice way of having those little touchstones without actually having like a little card at the beginning being like 1860 year of our father right um so it's good i i really enjoyed the flick um i feel like we can't really go too much further without really diving into spoilers um but if you but if you haven't seen it um you can do so it's available on amazon prime you can rent it um I believe it's also you can get the physical copy through the Criteria. Yeah, Criterion. Yes. And also, if you subscribe to the Criterion channel, which I cannot recommend enough, it's a godsend. You can see uh, uh, Yojimbo and a large chunk of Kurosawa's filmography on their service, as well as listen to audio commentaries for a lot of the movies. Uh, Stephen Prince, who is, uh, I, I guess, considered sort of the Kurosawa scholar when it comes to uh, sort of uh, projects like this, pulling in experts for this type of thing. He does an audio commentary on Yojimbo that I listened to uh, before I came in here to record this show, and I think it's it's a great track. Um, yeah, I, I always, I'm a big proponent of physical media, but if, if physical media is not your jam and you want to check these movies out, Criterion Channel, absolutely. I, they're not paying me anything, and I will continue to plug them because I want them, I want them to be around. Heck yeah, non-sponsored ad. <laughs> Um, but yeah, so we are going to jump behind a spoiler wall um, in which we're going to talk about the story. We're going to talk about the aesthetic. We're going to talk about the background behind the story and all that stuff. So uh, make sure to uh, watch the film or if you prefer to just listen, then know that beyond the spoiler wall, we will have all the details, baby. Uh, so... Before we get there, make sure if you have a chance and you're feeling so kind, uh, go onto iTunes, leave us a rating or a review. It really helps us get to the top of the charts and helps other people find us. Uh, and it helps us know what you like about the show and continue to do that. Uh, so uh, if you leave a five-star rating, we will totally read it on this show. We'll give you a nice little shout-out, baby. Uh, so, that said, we are going to come back with all the spoilers right after this. And we're back. 
So, Lex Michael. Yes. You you kind of gave us a, a run through in the pitch about this this samurai coming into town and being like, "Yo, I'm gonna play these gangs against each other." Um, but it's so much more than that, you know. Um, I I think the thing I really like about this movie are are all the really uh, whimsical characters. Yes. Um, they all have a very distinct personality. They all have uh, stakes in the whole matter. Um, and they all play a part in the conclusion. Yeah. Uh, Kurosawa has always been excellent about defining, developing his characters and also yeah, making them all feel like a crucial part. No matter how minimal the role is, no matter how little screen time, he's was always excellent at making every part feel like a, a necessary component of the whole. Yeah, I think that my favorite aesthetically, uh, I believe his name is uh, Inokichi. He's the character with the mono brow, the missing t- the yeah. missing tooth, and he's uh, he's dumb and and kind of lovable. Yes, um, I that that I think is my favorite character. Uh, second is uh, Gonji, the uh, the I believe he's a he's just a, like a restaurant owner. He's like an old man who helps out the main character. Yeah, I, I do want to shout out uh, Inokichi was played by Daisuke Keto, and he's an actor that's worked with Kurosawa a number of times. He was in uh, Seven Samurai. He's in Rashomon. He's in he's in a bunch of them. So here here he is. Yes, with a rocking a sweet a sweet unibrow and some sweet big old chompers. Okay. And also because you mentioned him, I want to shout out uh, Ijiro Tono who played Gonji. Uh, he also worked with Kurosawa on Seven Samurai. Okay, he, nice. Yeah, Kurosawa built this little mini repertory company of actors uh, that he worked with over and over and over again. The two most prominent of which, both in this movie, obviously, Toshiro Mifune, they worked together on a bunch of movies. Uh, Stray Dog, High and Low, Redbeard, uh, uh, the sequel to this, of course, Sanjuro, Seven Samurai, uh, Throne of Blood, um, and Takashi Shimura, who's in this movie as the, the uh, sake merchant Mm -hmm. uh the guy who's sort of on the other side of this gang war uh and he worked with kurosawa on a ton of movies as well many with tashira mifune who's also in stray dog he's in uh uh, seven samurai he's in rashomon etc etc okay he also is in godzilla uh which we talked about on this show uh a little ways back and i mentioned how uh toho same company uh there was some overlap uh in the personnel uh on Godzilla and in uh, sort of Kurosawa's wheelhouse. Right. Yeah. Uh, Kurosawa's like the the Kevin Smith of Japan. <laughs> Only works with the same six actors. I guess seven if you... <laughs> so is so is Toshiro Mifune like his Jason Mewes? Uh, yeah. Yep. I, somebody somebody uh, in this uh, in this arrangement will be flattered and someone in this arrangement may be offended. Um, Actually, the, the you know what? Everybody's happy because everybody yeah. likes each other because right. the world is a beautiful, warm, accepting place. Yeah. Where nobody, nobody brings their egos and deeply embedded competitive nature into interactions with their peers. Heck yeah. Um, so earlier you mentioned uh, his, this character being the the man with no name. Yes. And, and I like how he gets the name where like they're like, who are you? And he like looks out the window and there's just like a there's just like a mulberry patch outside, uh-huh. and it goes, ah, uh, yeah, uh, uh, it's a it's, uh, Kuabatake Senjuro, which means thirty year old mulberry field. Yeah. So let's let's talk a little bit more about uh, Sanjiro. Yes. Um, which every time I want it to be Sanjiro as opposed to like Juro, which is yeah, it's it's is it thirty years. <laughs> it's thirty years, Sanjiro. Um, but. Uh, I like this character. There's a, there's a, the first time you meet him, he's just kind of wandering and there's a, he has like a, a shoulder twitch uh, or a shoulder tick uh, that I believe I read that Kurosawa described his character to, to uh, Mifune, Mifune as like a, a dog or a wolf. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the, the tick kind of comes from this idea of how a, a dog or a wolf will, will try to scratch at, fleas yes and so uh i I really like that aspect of it uh and because it helps just like the way this guy walks and the way that he um like interacts with the world around him you learn so much about him without 
there being like a narrator being like, this guy was, uh, he's a ronin from this group of people. And now that the Edo era is over, he has no place. Right. Um, and Mufune has this uh, animalistic quality, especially when he's playing uh, samurai or warrior roles for Kurosawa. He feels at any moment like he could turn completely uh, rabid dog on you. Now, there are certain other films that they made together, like, uh, you know, where he plays a more buttoned up character, and he can absolutely pull that off as well. He can feel very composed and very centered. But as, uh, like, especially his characters in, say, uh, uh, Rashomon and uh, Seven Samurai and, and this movie, uh, to a degree, at any moment, like, especially, like, with those dog-like performance choices, you feel like this dude could, doesn't even have to pull out his sword, he could just bite your arm off. <laughs> and, and, so to that point, right, like, that's sort of mirrored in one of the, the first great images in this movie, which is as Sanjuro waltzes into town, one of the first things he sees is a dog uh, literally kind of trotting his way, carrying a severed human hand. Yeah. Right, literally a, a dog uh, that is directly tied to some act of really shocking violence. Yeah. And it's also, it's so darkly funny. Again, like Kurosawa um, has uh, moments of levity and moments of humor in most of his films, but this is, I, I believe, the first time he really intentionally and purposefully made a comedy. Now, of course, your mileage may vary depending on your sense of humor. Uh, Tari, you know my sense of humor. Yes. Uh, if you've been listening to this show, you probably have a sense of, of what makes me giggle. I get such a kick out of this dog just trotting happily out of town with a human hand. Yeah. I had read that that was uh, Kurosawa's idea. Like he had a bunch of his ADs pitched to him, things that visually would tell the audience that this was a, a rundown town and they all pitch stuff and he's like, nah, it's been done before. And he's like, dog with a hand. Hell yeah. <laughs> um, I did. I, li I like a lot of the, the visual storytelling because you can tell that he wanted this to be a very thoughtful, even though it's a comedy, like it's a very thoughtful thing that like he's trying to convey uh, to the audience without having to tell them too much. Um, even though like you get kind of a, an info dump from, um, Gonji, but like it's, it's done in the most like entertaining way where this guy is just tired of all of it. And he's, he's talking about the, um, the coffin maker and how sick of that guy he is. And he's yep. tired of everyone, uh, no one coming to his shop because of all the crime and, and like you get this breakdown, but like this character is so like, full and well-rounded that it's just it feels so natural yes um but yeah and so you were talking about the violence a little bit and i had read that apparently um the violence in this was supposed to be um more troubling to people and so like uh, kurosawa was like you know i want i want people to see how uh destructive violence is and how uh how it can hurt people and, and how people are affected by it. Mm -hmm. uh, and instead people were like, violence is dope. <laughs> That's Let's do more dope violence. <laughs> That's the thing, right? It's like because of the tone of the movie and it's not an accident. It's, it's purposeful. The violence is shocking, but because the movie is intentionally comedic, it just feels like an extension of the comedy in a lot of places that the more shocking and graphic the violence is, in this context, the more it's just like, oh, oh, oh shit. Like when the uh, there's a there's a sequence sort of midway through the movie where a gentleman is is killed with a big old sword slash and it's just like a blood geyser coming off him, mm -hmm. almost kill bill style. Little more upsetting because it's in black and white. So it's it's not that cartoony red spray it's like dark and it looks even more like blood yeah it's it's kind of horrifying if you key into the moment but because of the context within the movie within the tone of the rest of the movie it's just like oh that dude's fucked <laughs> <laughs> i mean and like i think the earliest example of that is when we have the uh i guess it's uh saibe's or Sebe's warriors or his like gang uh and sandro just wants to make a point and so he like he kills two straight off the bat, um, and then one of them he cuts his arm off. Yes, um, and he's just like laying there screaming as he's bleeding from his arm, and he's like, and, and at first Sandro's like, 
yeah, all right, you know, make two coffins. And he's like, oh, yeah, this guy's going to bleed to death, so make three. Yep, um, and you mentioned the severed arm. Of course, uh, if, you've, if you've been paying attention to American pop culture any time in the last 40 or so years, you will recognize that little bit of business uh, as something George Lucas took and put in Star Wars. Mm. Uh, the scene in the cantina when Obi-Wan pulls his lightsaber and chops off Homeboy's arm is a lift from Yojimbo. Oh, interesting. It also feels like, like, because of the way the like lead up to that scene, it also feels like um, that the two guys in that cantina were almost like aping the because like right before it happens, everyone's talking about how much of a criminal they are. And so he's like, yeah, I killed a bunch of people. And the other guy's like, I've been in jail before. And the other one's like, I'm all I'm in jail right now. <laughs> um, so um, it 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 feels like that scene was just miniaturized where he's like, I'm watered in 30 systems. Um, and I, I like I, that directly um, like. I saw the reference and I was like, oh, this is interesting. It's nice. I think that that's one of the nice things about you introducing me to these older films is that like I can see where things come from. Yeah. Like earlier or like just a second ago, you were like, yeah, it sprays out just like in Kill Bill. But then you start to realize that like Kill Bill is a, a especially that like samurai sequence is an amalgamation of all of these movies with the addition of anime thrown in yes i mean a lot of what's in kill bill uh i think the a lot of those reference points are movies that are a lot uh, i'm gonna use the word schlockier than kurosawa's oeuvre but i don't mean that's not a value assessment like i really dig those kinds of movies if anything i mean that as a compliment uh-huh. um but also i know like i know like uh, tarantino's a big zatoichi fan and also zatoichi and yojimbo or the, the character of sanjuro uh crossed over in a later movie um, although I don't know that they refer to Mufuni's character by that name. Right. Uh, but you talk about things uh, being what? I'm just imagining him looking over at another window and being like, my name's Mizu. <laughs> and they're just like, because of that water fountain over there? And he's like, yeah. He's like, no. <laughs> it runs away. <laughs> um, but talking about uh, things uh, from this movie and also from Kurosawa's oeuvre being lifted, uh, for Star Wars in particular, Lucas was a big Kurosawa fan. I mean, even the using the wipes as transitions was something that he took from Kurosawa movies. If you watch, and I'll make you watch more Kurosawa for the show, if you take a look at The Hidden Fortress in particular, also starring Toshiro Mifune, uh, a lot of the structure of Star Wars uh, in its final form was borrowed from that movie. Okay, interesting. Um, did they also get sued by uh, by Kurosawa and have to give him fifteen percent of profit? Not in to addition my to a large sum. <laughs> Not to my knowledge. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> Kurosawa don't play. Although they could have that movie made a lot of money. Oh yeah, I imagine. Like he's his estate would still probably be getting paid up right now. Kurosawa is dead. Yes. Uh, yes. Okay, cool. Um, so now I can talk shit. No. <laughs> His movies are bad, actually. Um, no. More like Kura, so what? <laughs> yep, nailed it. That totally sounds like some shit you'd say. Yeah, it is. Um, that, that's going to be the name of my next podcast. And it's just every week you look at another Kurosawa movie and just shit on it. Oh, yeah. Yep. Um, and you bring in you bring in guests, not really to shit on it with you so much as to listen to you shit on it. Right. Because it's not as fun if it's a monologue. I have to you have to hear the groans and the hesitant ums uh, as I'm doing my rants. Right. They'll be like, oh, I actually liked that one. <laughs> and you're like, you're stupid for liking that. You're stupid and your tastes are bad. <laughs> this is Kura So What. Make sure to subscribe and like. Um, no, I actually really enjoyed this film, and I'm sure I enjoy his other films as well. Um, <laughs> okay. So, let's get to the meat of this baby. Uh, what? Baby meat? All right. 
you fucking said it. Don't look at me. I'm looking at you. Uh, all right, let's let's dig in. Where where do you want to begin the meat digging process? Um, I mean, I feel like if if you've seen this movie, I think the hardest part to really start wrapping your brain around is like what the deal is with this this town. Yeah. So I really want to just kind of start digging into that. Um, in case someone who's listening is like. I like the movie. I just don't know what happened in it. Right. I and will I, say. Oh, sorry. No, go ahead. Oh no. So uh, before we jumped on Mike, I was saying how I had not seen Yojimbo in a little bit, um, and I am much more familiar with Fistful of Dollars. Yojimbo, I always found a little bit more challenging to keep track of. Not because, not because the movie is actually that complicated, but it ends up feeling a little bit more difficult to follow than than the movies that base themselves on it and i think part of it for me is just that there are a number of characters who have names that sound very similar well i mean yes i think that because the three brothers uh on the the sake side um you have uh ushitora and then the his two younger brothers have very similar names so you have inokichi but you also have unosuke Right. And you're and which feel like all just combinations of the same um, characters. Yes. And characters in terms of the, the Japanese kanji and not kanji, but the Japanese characters as opposed to like characters as, as in people you write and make uh, backstories for. Yes. Um, so like I get that aspect of it. And also like all the setup is given to you in a, a big info dump. And if you're not really like keyed in to like why gambling is a big deal or like what what the stakes are and why it's affecting people, um, then I think the rest of it is just like, all right, I'm just going to watch this dude play a game with these two different sides. Um, but like basically the gamblers, gambling bosses are the crime bosses, yes. basically, um, because gambling's a crime. Um, I, it seems like brothels are a crime. Um, seems like, yeah. Uh, and so the main thing that these two dudes is, are fighting about is, is crime territory. They want, they want to take everyone out of house and home, um, or essentially gain more territory by, um, making people lose and taking their homes, um, and then taking their stuff and, and like, you know, enjoying it for themselves. Yuck, yuck, gross enough. Right. Um, well, and so oh. what you're what you're describing, if it if it sounds if it sounds familiar to anybody, uh, I think you're also describing uh, capitalism. And I don't think it's an accident that this entire gang war is ultimately really in service of the agendas of two business people. Um, yes. Um, I mean, I wasn't taking it there. Um, we're not going just, all the way. We're not going all the way there. I'm just letting everybody know that there's a signpost right here. We don't have to go that way, but I just wanted to bring everybody's attention to the big sign because right. that's not an accident yeah. that those two guys are essentially capitalists. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, which is also a very big Western concept that uh, is invading Japan. Yes. Um, um, and, and two, uh, worth pointing out, I mean, uh, Kurosawa is widely considered to be, especially of the era, one of the more uh, Western of the Eastern filmmakers in terms of sensibility. And yeah. Of course, this this man with no name, this mysterious stranger riding into a, a seedy, crime-ridden town and doling out his own brain of justice, very much a Western story. Right. Um, so... I think that so the main pieces of these two sides are that like one's a big sake guy. I believe it's uh, Ushitora is brewing sake and he's fucking like raking it in, baby. Um, and he's taking people's taking people's homes. He's taking them from how this. He's recruiting young people and being like, "Yo, bruh, you want to be in my sake business, my dudes?" Um, and then we have uh, Sebe who. Uh, you know he's taking control of that silk business, baby. He's 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 uh he's he's charging less for silk, taking people down a peg. He's also got his thugs just kind of hanging out, stealing people's wives and selling them to to politicians, like you do. Yeah. Um. So they're both not great people. Um. But that's the main thing. Is like if if you were let's say you were in Detroit and uh. 
you know, you guys have your cars. Detroit is a big car city. Yeah. Um, and then someone else came in and was like, yo, I, I have this other commerce thing. Every like, let's say it's scooters. Um, <laughs> and another guy came in and was like, yo, I'm going to make it big with these scooters. And then, uh, the, the leaders of the car company was like, nah, bro, this car town. And then they're like, it's going to be Scooterberg soon. And so then, uh, it's those two competing sides, um, trying to take over all the businesses. I think you lost me at Scooterberg. Scooterberg. <laughs> that's a good, that's a good name for a city, especially if you're trying to taunt someone. Go back to Scooterberg, nerd. <laughs> Um, yeah, sure. Yeah. I, I, yes. Um, so <laughs> on the, so on the one side of this sort of, uh, conflict, right. Spearheaded ultimately by these two, these two capitalists. So on the one side you have Saibe and you have his wife, uh, and they sort of represent that, that side of the, of this war. And on the other side, then you have these three brothers with, with names that are, uh, difficult to distinguish. No, they're super easy. Ushitora is the oldest brother. <laughs> and then the second oldest is Unokichi, right? Or I guess Inokichi. Um, See, you don't even know. I'm. Uh, it's because uh, Unosuke was right below it, and right. I just started. You know, and then there's well, he's Unosuke. The, he's the easiest to remember because he's he's got the, the, the pistol, and he ultimately becomes sort of the... Not the, if not the chief antagonist, then certainly the closest to being a, a mirror for our hero. Right. Um, I mean, yeah, because he's he's uh, he's basically another samurai, but he's got this cool gun and a creepy smile. Yes. Um, which it's really all you need. Yeah, and it's also also it just juxtaposes with uh, uh, Sandro, who never smiles. He's always like, "I'm I'm a mean guy." remember me as a mean guy um even though everyone's like you're nice and he's like <laughs> shut up give me alcohol <laughs> go back to scooterberg nerd <laughs> um <laughs> and like the, the son runs back to his parents like that 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 man with a sword just just called me a nerd and told me to go back to to scooterberg i think that's a place he made up <laughs> I mean, it's made up until the scooters take over. <laughs> All they need is one, one good bodyguard to take out all the cars. <laughs> Fucking at the end, dude's trying to. He's like, he's been stabbed. Dude's trying to get on his scooter and ride away. And Sanjiro has to like try and help him on, but he's just like laying flat with his hands reached up on the handlebars. Like, I'll see you at the gates of hell, you fuck. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. I yeah. like it. He should have taken our story notes. This could have been a great film. No, we just have to. I mean, it's the, the neither of those concepts existed back then. We just have to make it now. <laughs> um, it's been a while since Last Man Standing. Like Last Man Standing, I think it was '96 or something. That was '96. Um, which is like what twenty years ago. So it's time that we made. Yeah, do the fucking math. <laughs> do the goddamn math. It was 23 years ago. Um, and so now it's time that we get back into gear by making it <laughs> making it Car Town versus Scooter Burke. Uh, yeah. Right, I'm down so we it. just have to clear the rights with the Kurosawa or, estate. Or we, we don't clear the rights with anybody because what we know now is that all that happens is your release is delayed by three years and then your film becomes widely hailed as a classic. Yeah, but also you pay a large sum and then have to give them 15% of all your profit. But like money or glory? Both. I want both. <laughs> I want either money first and then use that to build my glory or I want glory and people to pay me to do things. I need both, Lex Michael. I'm not satisfied by one or the other. Unlike Sandro, who needs neither. He doesn't need money. He doesn't need glory. He just gets a he gets his kicks out of freeing towns. That's his gig. That's his thing. He's he's just like, yo, 
people will give me money or people will give me food and stuff if I help them out. You know, people will give me money, but I don't need that money. I'll just give it to people who need it, but, like a wife and a husband who are escaping prostitution. But I also feel like it's less about saving a town than it is just about eradicating things that he sees as a negative force on the world. Because if you think about it, when he finally leaves this town at the end, basically everyone in town is dead. You know, it's not really about saving the town so much as it is about getting these gangs to wipe each other well, out. But the town can rebuild, you know, <laughs> the town is more than bricks and mortar. I, I guess, town, but like he really saved a couple of guys in some buildings. Those people decided to fight him and that was their choice. <laughs> they decided to be a part of these gangs and he even saved one at the end. He seemed to be the son of the old couple he met at the beginning who they were like mm -hmm. hey he's gotten involved in gangs oh bad gangs are bad so basically you know uh i feel like saying that he saved the town has a better connotation than he is eradicating things he doesn't like because then he's a villain he's a bad guy but I, he I, just happens to be a bad guy for good things well I, but i think that is not an inaccurate reading of this character like he's not a traditional hero by any means he's right very much i don't know if anti-hero is exactly correct because ultimately the, the people he's going after are all legitimately bad people and mostly he ends up he ends up getting them to kill each other more than he's actually doing the killing himself. Although when he kills, oh boy, does he. Um, but he's definitely not a straightforward white hat traditional hero. Right. He's got a very, uh, let's say, nebulous moral code. Um, so I say, you know what? You saves the town sounds like really good spin. Like, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, that sounds like they're spinning it real well. Yeah. Like, Sanjuro has really great PR people. Mm -hmm. And they're like, he saved the town. It's like, everyone's dead. Yes, but the town is still there. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's it's there for more people to come in and move <laughs> and, and, and take over all the businesses. <laughs> like, not for nothing. Uh, when When gangs leave a big power vacuum, that power vacuum is usually filled by worse gangsters. Right, but here's the thing. Uh, since one of the the leaders was killed by the silk guy, yes. then it was like a person of the town essentially reclaiming the the city. So like it's n not even a power vacuum anymore. It's it's the people of the city being like, "Yo, we're back in a and and no one's going to take our town again." Ooh, boy. But, like, then you're left in a situation where I, I guess, like, the town is now in in the hands of the gang that's ostensibly less bad. But they've been doing the same shit the whole time. So is it a is it a win? No, but both gangs are dead because, like, um, Unosuke kills all of Sebe's gang. Right. And then uh, all of... Uh, all of Uchitora's gang is killed by Sanjiro, uh, with the exception of the one guy who went back home to eat gruel the rest of his life. <laughs> um, so both sides are gone. Both sides are gone, and now it's just the silk guy. Right, but you're spinning a scenario in which this town can ostensibly rebuild. So yeah. if Saibe's still around, if Saibe rebuilds, essentially you're going to have, now granted it'll be a lot more stable than living in a town besieged by a, a gang war, but you still have essentially a, a capitalist running crime bosses running a gang. Nah, like, baby, Saibe's dead. Well, no, but like, wait. Saibe's dead. No, so Yes. Um, hang on. No. Ushitora is dead. No. It, yes. Everyone's dead, Lex. <laughs> no, but I'm saying if you rebuild within that model, you're still back to square one. So then then Senjuro will have to come back and get everyone to kill each other all over again. No, they wouldn't rebuild so that the gangs are still there. They would just rebuild and let their, like, their places flourish. Like, we saw that when the the two gangs had their truce going on that like 
the restaurant was open and people were doing stuff. And then like the uh, silk shop was like, oh, look at all the silk I'm selling. And the sake place was like, sake for everyone. Who wants a sake in the face? Um, but then once they started doing more violence, then like they had to close up shop again. So like they rebuild gangless and then they can just flourish and let people wander through town and be like, yo, I love sake and silk. All the things that start with S, baby, <laughs> and s- 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 sex. I love sex <laughs> with consenting sex. Uh, yeah, no, I, I, I hear you. I just feel like you, you need, you need. I feel like you need somebody like Sanjuro in there so that when inevitably, when inevitably, as people always do, uh, they turn towards corruption once again, he can just pit them against each other to maintain the peace. Well, so he, this kind of gets to this idea of like, uh, lone, like this issue with like old Westerns and, and, and like hero stories where someone blows into town, does a bunch of stuff and then leaves where like th- it's, it's, we have this heroic idea that like this person, it comes in, fixes everything and is never seen again. And everyone heralds them as a hero. Um, and we never go back to, to those places and see what further damage has happened. Or like if they were actually able to rebuild, this was something that was, I let, it was explored a little bit in Dr. Who. Um, cause Dr. Who is, that type of hero that comes in and is like, look at all your problems. I'm going to help you fix it in a day. And then they leave. And then you never really see what the consequences of that were. The doctor is himself slash herself itself. Yeah. Doctor sort of genderless. Yeah. Uh, themselves uh, is uh, relatively speaking, a man or a person with no name. The doctor's right. a title, but he doesn't really write doctor who and shit. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so like, and this is a thing that I have, I, I personally, when I see like hero stories, like even modern superhero things where it's like in the, in the absence of that hero, then people uh, essentially, or I guess in the presence of that hero, people become very reliant on it and and people um, really need, like need that hero. Um, Otherwise, like society will collapse and it's like, are they actually helping or are they building a system in which people are dependent on them and uh, ultimately just feeding into the very thing that they are fighting against? On top of which, you really have to take it on faith that this person is going to be acting in the interests of others because he's acting unilaterally. He's his own authority. Right. Nobody said, hey, go clean up that town. And certainly nobody said, hey, go clean up that town by getting everybody in it killed. Right. Got a Sokovia Accords, that motherfucker. <laughs> I mean, but we see how that ends as well. It's 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 not an easy issue to solve um, because, yes, you have to. And I think that that is kind of what we had started talking about, where it's the difference between someone just fighting against things that they hate and like someone who's actively trying to do good. Um, and there are moments when he like, actively tries to do a good thing um which like leads to more bloodshed and it's like all right well then he has to clean up his own mess right um and so like there are a lot of themes that uh, you know from a modern point of view you can start kind of digging into and i think that like over the course of like our history with storytelling we've started to kind of deconstruct these ideas um but like it's interesting to see how these like tropes and these ideas got started. Right. Now uh, you talk about too um, the, the implications of a character like this and how uh, sort of baked into that idea is these, these stories are really appealing kind of like what, what you were getting at uh, because there's a strong wish fulfillment element to the idea of being the person that waltzes into a situation, lays waste to everything because that's legitimately quote unquote righteous and then strolls out of there having sort of won the day by bashing everything to death. Right. Um, you can't, you can't, A, you can't do that, obviously. Uh, it would be bad. Um, but also, 
it, baked into that scenario, baked into that fantasy is a completely lawless world, right? Because this, for all intents and purposes, this is a lawless, certainly in Westerns, uh, certainly in spaghetti Westerns, that's a very lawless world that they're depicting. You don't right. want that. You do not want a lawless world. You don't want a world where... Uh, oh, we can't fight today because there's a, a government inspector coming in, an actual, uh, you know, supposed source of authority, right? But now we're going to send a couple guys uh, one town over to kill a government official, so that distracts them and stuff. So there essentially, for all intents and purposes, is no law. Right. You don't actually want a world where you can live out that fantasy. It's very bad. Right. And most of the time, these heroes end up, dying in some big skirmish or like maybe they'll do like a big sacrifice thing and then they're like i did a one good and then it's over for them <laughs> the, the terminator two thumbs up uh-huh. <laughs> yep they did one good and then like that's it i'll see you at the gates of hell <laughs> that famous line from terminator two that the terminator says to john connor is yep <laughs> I remember that. Yeah, they took it from this movie. Yeah, of course. <laughs> Such inspiration. Uh, but but oh, so so uh, I did want to talk about. I did want to talk about the way uh, ultimately Senjuro dispatches uh, with with his uh, chief uh, adversary, uh, because the idea, of course, is he's he's literally bringing a knife to a gunfight. It's a sword, but he's essentially yeah, he's bringing a knife to a gunfight. Yeah. And there's this idea, and it, it's shown. Um, uh, call him, call my boy Uno. Uh, <laughs> you see how quickly and easily he's able to dispatch whatever physical threat he's faced with using this pistol, right? Clearly, he's got the upper hand strategically in every scenario, and so he expects, of course, doesn't matter how good a swordsman this dude is, it's gonna be like. I'm sure that's exactly what he said to himself. It's going to be just like that scene in my favorite film, Raiders of the Lost Ark, where the man is got waving the sword all around and Harrison Ford just goes bang. It's going to be just like that. Yep. And I will get to live out my hero fantasy from the movie I enjoy. Yep. But uh, Sanjuro, uh, Sanjuro ain't afraid to fight dirty. And he just takes out homeboy's gun hand right away and then just runs up with his sword and takes him out. Mm-hmm. I like that shit. Yeah. I also, I like how, and this is because I'm accustomed to long drawn out samurai battles, but I like how quickly people are dispatched. It's basically because in, uh, I once took a, uh, sword art class. Um, or I guess I forget the name of the, the martial art, but it's specific. Ido, I think it is. Mm. Um, and they, one of the first questions they ask is, two uh, samurai face off against one another. Um, they have equal skill and equal speed. Who wins? And everyone's like, oh, well, you know, it depends on the factors. And they're like, no, they both die. Um, because most battles or uh, faces, or most sword battles, uh, happen very quickly and it yep. is a matter of um, just a few quick movements yes. uh, and so I like that basically he just murders these people very quickly yep um, and it's there's nothing drawn out about it. there's no ceremony about it it's just like yeah you get slashed by a sword you die yeah yeah and he, and, and in that sense uh, Sanjuro sort of becomes a force of nature we see him brought low a few times in this movie i mean there's there's a whole little section where he's gotten the crap kicked out of him and he's trying to get out of his predicament but he's been beaten so bad he can't even get up so right he's having to drag himself around just with upper body strength so we definitely see him brought low and and being made to feel a lot more human and a lot more vulnerable a lot more breakable but when he pulls himself back together right he becomes you get him with his sword in his hand and you don't hit him with any cheap shots dude becomes this sort of unstoppable, almost rabid, uh, destructive force. Right. And of course, Toshiro Mifune is sort of, as a performer, he's sort of that incarnate. Like, he's the absolute perfect uh, actor for this role. But again, we come back to this idea of, did he, like, save the town? Because he just kills the shit out of everything. And, like, when he leaves town, again, everyone's dead except for a couple of people. And it's not like those couple of people are like... Thank you, Sanjuro. You saved the town. Rejoice, like in euphoria and stuff. He literally bails out of there, and they're like, uh, um, <laughs> um no. I, I mean, because I imagine 
that like all of the all of the madams or not I guess they're not madams but all of the women from the brothel were set free and they're just hanging out somewhere um maybe i i imagine <laughs> that's your head cannon yep. yeah maybe that happened yeah um and everyone who was just kind of hanging out in their houses being like oh, i don't want to die now they come out and it's so as he's leaving, it's like that scene in Godzilla where Godzilla's really tired and he's like <laughs> heading back to the water and everyone's like, yeah, Godzilla, thanks for saving us from the Muto. And he's like, and he gives a little See at the monster thumbs hell, up. Dumb shit. <laughs> I'm going to Scooterburg. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I, <laughs> I, I, I still I want to believe that. Um, that he helped save this town and there are more of the people. I mean, I know that in truth he escalated something that was mostly neutral though. Like people kept, people were dying on a regular basis um, as told in that first scene with the coffin maker where, um, you know, Kichi's like, how many on our side died? And he's like two. And then he's like, how many on their side died? And then the guy's like, four. And he's like, yeah! <laughs> yeah! And then later, um, the town is so destroyed that the coffin maker's like, uh, they're not doing coffins anymore. This is no they're fucking just point. fucking <laughs> killing everybody. So, yes, a lot of people did die because of this thing where at first it was just a few here and there. And now, like, it's scorched earth, baby. Um but I like to imagine that he, he did a good. He did one good. I mean, again, it's it's based on the story the movie is telling. Now, of course, if this were to happen in real life, it, it is even more uh, complicated and difficult to really sort of pin down as far as good, question mark, or yeah. bad. But in the movie, uh, you know, the, the, the way the story is presented, the people he wipes out, Ultimately, for the people who are left in this town, it is better uh, in that sense. Yeah. But at the same time, it's like, yeah, like you can't necessarily uh, ascribe his uh, his intentions, actually. Maybe not as... Because if he's slaying the bad guys, you know, in movie terms, okay, that's your quote-unquote hero. Right. But and they go out of their way to be like, these guys are bad guys. Right. Like, especially with the scene we were talking about earlier... Where he's like, I want it on 12 systems. Right. Um, yeah. But his intentions are not really altruistic in any way. Because all, not only is he playing one side against the other, not he's not really doing it to save the town. He's doing it because he thinks these gangs should be wiped out. But he's also doing it for money. Like every time he goes and offers his service to one side or the other, he's trying to, he's basically trying to extort them for his services. Um, so it's not as though his intentions are altruistic. It's not like he's doing this because it's the right thing to do. He's using it A, for personal gain, and B, so that he can wipe out people he thinks deserve to be wiped out. Right. Whether or not that's true in the context of the story, it's certainly not uh, uh, an explicitly heroic motivation well it's interesting that you bring up him pricing them out because like one it doesn't ever really feel like he cares about the actual money he's getting and i thought it was a really interesting way of using capitalism against the capitalists in that him raising his price so high means that everyone who is not getting that price feels cheated and they're more likely to leave this group mm -hmm. they're they're like this guy's getting 30, 30, 30 Rio, and I'm getting like two silver. Fuck this. Being a part of a gang is not great for my bottom line. Crime doesn't pay. Right. Uh, and so, like, I think that people would have given enough time, would have started leaving, being like, we're not getting paid enough to die because we're literally not getting paid enough to die for this guy who can obviously give this one person 30 Rio, which is a lot. Um, or 50 Rio, which is a lot. Um, so I think it was a savvy business thing that he was doing in terms of like making it so like no one wanted to join after him. Yeah. And these people were fighting using their resources, which he was just like doling away. He's like, everyone take my Rio. Right. No, yes, I absolutely agree with everything you just said. I just mean, traditionally speaking, it is not, uh, 
uh, it's not a traditional heroic motivation. Yeah. Um, well, fuck your traditions. <laughs> but that's sort of the point, right? Is that that's not who this character is. This character is not a hero in any traditional sense, nor are the characters that come in the later movies that are directly inspired by by this movie. Yeah. And so it's, and of course you you root, the reason I think you root for Sanjuro is, is twofold. One, of course, the movie is telling you that he's your main character and that if nothing else, uh, these other guys are at least as bad. Uh, but also, too, just because it's Toshiro Mifune, and so this character is automatically awesome. <laughs> um, I mean, I guess so. Um, I mean, I think it's also that, like, you can, you can, like, paste yourself upon him. He's that sweet, sweet fantasy character, baby. Well, and we'll talk about this next week. Uh, Clint Eastwood's Man With No Name and Fistful of Dollars even more so. Uh, they sort of intentionally made that character to be a cipher. Like Clint Eastwood actually requested fewer lines mm. in the movie specifically for that reason. Okay. Um, I, I think Mufune's character in this movie, and a lot of it does have to do with what Mufune himself brings to it in terms of performance. I do feel like on paper, I think he's he's a lot closer to a cipher, but because of what Mufune brings to it, he does feel a little bit more like a fleshed out character. But like I said, I think that has more to do with the actor than the way the character's written. Okay. Um, I really look forward to seeing what the escalation in Fistful of Dollars is in that we have this character who is a good samurai, but like in a Western context, everyone has guns. So like, I, I have to imagine that whoever is the Unosuke in, in this one must have like a Gatling gun attached to his chest. And he's just like, look at my chest Gatling gun. Uh, the, the equivalent character, I believe, is named Ramon Rojo. And uh, yes, there is there is uh, an equivalent in the movie. It's not a Gatling gun, but it is um, it, it's a weapon that could uh, ostensibly one up a pistol. Chess Gatling gun, or or like a, a one one small cannon attached to his crotch. Right, like he's got the. I was about to say, like he's got the crotch gun from uh, from Dust Till Dawn. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, so, anyways, uh, we got to wrap up, baby. This, any, do you have a last thought, something to leave people with? Um, well, uh, probably, but but first, I guess I want to ask you, because you've never seen this movie before, what what do you feel now that we've talked through it? Kind of what are your final thoughts on this thing, uh, having never seen it before and now coming to it fresh? I will share my final thoughts. I think it was a, a really good movie. I think that like it has a, a timeless quality to it, especially because it is... A, essentially like a period piece. Um, I think that we are very familiar with the like wandering Ronin uh, archetype. And I think the, the character of Sanjuro really, um, really plays that well. And you get why people were inspired by it. Um, I think that it was a funny movie. Um, and I think that like it plays super well, like morally and uh, just like in execution, like it's shot really, very well. Um, there are a lot of fun sequences. I also really like all of the characters, as I mentioned before. Um, so yeah, I, I dug it. Yeah. And you just mentioned it was something we didn't really talk about in this conversation, uh, the aesthetics of the movie and sort of the technical aspects of the filmmaking. Kurosawa makes some of the or made some of the most beautiful movies in the history of the medium uh every shot composition in a kurosawa movie is is gorgeous to look at and i also like there's a very sort of uh stark uh eye-catching and sort of to me pleasing aesthetic in a movie like this where you have uh an almost medieval environment but you also have like you have these close-ups with this sort of hard uh electric light on their faces and it just creates this aesthetic that to me pops so hard and combining that with uh, the individual shot compositions themselves it's just a gorgeous thing to look at like and the the props and the costumes and the production design all of it i mean all of kurosawa's movies are absolutely stunning and this one is no exception yeah definitely so if y'all had a chance to check it out let us know what you thought. You can do so at Missing Outcast. That's M-I-S-S-I-N-G-O-U-T-C-A-S-T. Yeah, baby. Um, and you can also hit us up on our personal social media. 
Lex, where can people find you? I'm on Twitter and Instagram at the Lex Michael. And I'm at Tari J. That's T A U R I J A Y. Don't you join us next week when we're going to be talking about fistful of dollars. Come into this baby with a fistful of dollars. Starring what? No. Okay. <laughs> uh, Lex made a face I'm, and I'm it not just even made repeating it so what you just said. It's, it's you said the, the thing. Um you made it gross. <laughs> I'm not I am not coming into any baby. Oh, okay. <laughs> All right. You well s- you said it, goddammit. I'm gonna I'm Look gonna what you made me do. Show. So um this has been the retrospective that's introspective. <laughs> and now you have a new perspective. Go the fuck back to Scooterburg, you nerds.